Hello, provocateurs, disruptors, industry insiders, and wild creators. I am Brooke Warner here with Grant Faulkner, as always. And Grant, I'm extra excited about today's episode for a number of reasons. We're talking about writing from inside your industry from an incredible debut novelist who wrote last summer's buzziest novel, The Other Black Girl, about the book industry. So I'm beyond eager to talk to the author, Zakia Dalila Harris. But Grant, before we get to that, we have a long-anticipated announcement that we finally get to make today about what's going to be happening starting next week. And I would love for you to do the honors, if you would. Yeah, it is long anticipated, and we're really excited that Lit Hub Radio is going to distribute Right Minded. And I do want to say, make sure everybody knows that this will not affect you at all. You can still listen to us on your preferred platform. You can listen to us on the platform you're listening to us on now without any changes or clicks or forms to fill out, nothing. But we'll be included on Lit Hub's site and in their Lit Hub radio newsletter. And this is super great because Lit Hub is one of our favorite resources for all writing and reading matters. So we're honored to be recognized by them. And we also want to recommend that you check them out. You know, I uh, receive several of their newsletters daily and weekly, I guess. And, and, and I just love them. My only frustration is that I can't read every article I want to read. And beyond that, I also want to announce that um, next week uh, to kick this off is our 200th episode. So bang some symbols. Thank you, Brooke, for that <laughs> <laughs> festive <laughs> celebration. Uh, but yeah. We're going to have 200 more, I bet, too. Absolutely. I'm excited. Happy 200th episode, Grant. I can't believe we've done that many shows together. No kidding. Wow. And Brooke, you know, Zakia seems like a divinely timed guest for today's episode since we're making this move to Lit Hub Radio and since we've decided to center today's show on writing inside your industry, whatever that industry might be. Uh, but book publishing is pretty uniquely intriguing to folks. I personally think it's one of the weirdest industries <laughs> of all because it has a lot of weird like insider rules. And if and it seems like you have to learn a code to interact with it on so many different levels. And it's it's just very insider outsider by nature, you know, with with people who literally act as gatekeepers. So I think of it sometimes as being a bit medieval. And uh, this is a uniquely intriguing book, you know, describing, you know, it's been described as a combination between The Devil Wears Prada meets Get Out. So how can you not uh, want to explore that? <laughs> yeah. And when we talk to Zakia, you'll see that she also says uh, the Stepford Wives are in there as well. A very interesting intersection. Yeah. Uh, the book has been described as a psychological thriller. The Get Out reference and the Stepford Wives reference, too, has to do with the fact that, um, you know, the other black girl, her novel has some truly fantastical elements to it. It surrounds a storyline in which outside forces, which are driven by a powerful white man, the uh, editorial director role person of the book publishing company, Wagner, uh, is trying to basically make black people more complacent and more palatable to white people by not challenging white people and kind of fitting into their narratives. Uh, and of course, this is a very amazing storyline for book publishing. Uh, and it comes with some pretty explicit parodies of how insane the publishing industry is. And that said, the parodies aren't even that extreme. <laughs> like, I read it and was nodding along. I felt that even though some of the scenes were very cringy, as are some of the characters, it's also very spot on. And it was described by the New York Times as 
a funny, sometimes creepy indictment of the book business. Uh, and there are a lot of moments, you know, moments in meetings where Zakia is describing the people in the room and the decisions they're making and how out of touch the decision makers are the myopic way that the industry thinks. And I just wanted to share for those of you who haven't read it, and I hope you all will, um, that this is exemplified in a meeting where they're discussing a new novel about the opioid crisis, uh, and they're wanting that novel to resonate with the people that it's affecting. And so she shows in the book, you know, two different people are musing aloud about whether the audience they're trying to reach even reads you know, referring to them as those people. And so there's these kinds of things totally happen in marketing meetings. And there's a lot of irony in the book, like the implication here being that the people affected by the opioid crisis are going to care at all about this novel, for instance. But the most, uh, you know, sort of definite out of touch conversations that happen in editorial and marketing meetings are absolutely uh, highlighted in this book. And it troubled and delighted me at the same time <laughs> to read her take on on my industry. It was fun. I love the drama of out of touch conversations by people who regard themselves as in the know, um, except when I have to experience them in real life. I'm curious though, Brooke, since you have worked in publishing, did Zakia's descriptions of the office she worked in align with your personal experiences? You know, I know Zakia worked for Knopf Doubleday, which is a bigger house than Seal, but what felt similar and what felt different? Yeah, I mean, what's different is how Zakia writes about New York publishing. It is a much more elitist, rarefied world out there in the big now four publishers. I definitely related to the editorial meetings, the cover meetings, the conversations about the choices that get made. Um, and then the other thing is how people grow roots. You know, like people get these jobs when they're young and they work their way up and then they never leave. And that makes it really hard for new people up and coming to move their way up in the publishing industry. And Zakia did ultimately leave as an editorial assistant. Um, it's a uniquely hard job in New York publishing because it's so competitive and there are a lot of power dynamics out there. So I liked how she wrote about being what it's, uh, well, specifically about what it's like to be the only black girl until she's not. I mean, this is what she's imagining. So her two her protagonist, Nella, is the only black girl until Hazel gets the job and then is the other black girl. Uh, the story has things that I also didn't relate to because I didn't have the same experiences of microaggressions or of being tokenized. But there are things, of course, that do happen. And in my own experience, I, I certainly had experiences of being a woman and some of the misogyny in the industry. But I was also lucky, of course, because Seal Press was primarily a women's press. And so I did work with women. That said, I wrote a whole book on what it was like to be immersed in this female aspect of the industry in my book, Right on Sisters. So there is a lot to say about all of these spaces in which you are, you know, quote unquote, othered. And then I know that Zakia specifically wanted to write a book about diversity and retaining that diversity in workspaces. And she said in another interview that she wrote the book to imagine a world that's better for people of color. And so I love that motivation for writing a novel in general. It's one I've heard before, not only from writers of color, but from people in quote unquote other spaces. Um, and not only from novelists, right? Also from memoirists. And so 
I was thinking just in terms of centering this conversation, Grant, you know, we spend so much time in our workplaces and there are a lot of workplace novels and memoirs and other kinds of books about industry. One of my favorite books of all times actually is Fast Food Nation, which is a deep dive into the fast food industry is so good. And I don't know what it is about meat books, but I also <laughs> read Ruth Ozeki's My Year in Meats and Upton Sinclair's The Jungle, both fiction. Uh, and, you know, aligning a little closer to Zakia's book, I did not read The Devil Wears Prada, but I did see the movie. Um, and so I just thought, you know, if we're talking about workspace, workplace novels, are there any specific uh, industry novels that maybe have stayed with you over the years? Yeah, as you as you talk about this, I kind of am dreaming about a bookstore organized by like meat books. Um, <laughs> That'd be lovely, know. all red covers. Yeah, office books. It'd be such a different way to explore a bookstore. But um, yeah, and also while you're talking, I was thinking about the definition of of an industry novel, and I decided that it's not just the setting of a story, but a story whose setting or environment becomes a crucial part of the story itself, almost like a, a type of character in the story. So you might write a novel where a character has a job on Wall Street, but that's very different than the whole environment of Wall Street being the primary topic of the, the novel or a primary kind of player in it. So this was kind of interesting for me to think about in that light. And I thought of a bunch of good Hollywood novels, you know, starting with Nathaniel West's Day of the Locust way back in the 20s, I think that was, and F. Scott Fitzgerald's The Last Tycoon, and then the very popular Michael Tolkien's The Player, you know, which was made into this fantastic movie, as was Get Shorty by Elmore Leonard. And, you know, as a writer, of course, I can't get enough books about the writing world just because writers often liked to, to write about writers or themselves, rather. So there's, you know, Michael Chabon's Wonder Boys. Uh, I loved Andrew Sean Greer's Less, which was um, both funny and poignant. And then there's Raven Leilani's Luster, which came out maybe two or three years ago. And I think it's a fantastic novel to read alongside this one because she has um, a character that would fit right in with the other black girl in, in, in the publishing world. And I'm at a writing retreat right now, by the way, and the author Jane Smiley spoke yesterday. So I'm also thinking about novels that deal with the agricultural industry, starting with Jane's Thousand Acres, which won a Pulitzer, and Kent Haruff's Plain Song Trilogy, which I loved. And then there's the agricultural novel that perhaps started it all, O Pioneers by Willa Cather, which is about the plight of taking a punishing stretch of prairie and turning it into a prosperous farm. So I, I talked about novels. Are there are particular memoirs that stand out to you in the space, Brooke, beyond the, the meat books? <laughs> the meat books. Uh, yeah, that's such a great list of novels. And it just also shows you how many different takes there are on these stories in this vein. And I, it, yes, of course, there are so many uh, nonfiction books, specifically memoirs that go into industry. The food industry is always a major one. Uh, people love their food and love to write about food. And so many chefs, famous chefs have written their stories from Anthony Bourdain to Ruth Reichel to MFK Fisher to Kwame Unwachi, uh, just to name a few. Uh, and just many memoirs, I was thinking about memoirs by doctors, um, about the experience of being a first responder, like a firefighter or a police person. We have a really cool new memoir called Flashpoint coming out on our She Writes Press list by a first responder, um, a firefighter. 
Uh, and then, yeah, experiences like entrepreneurship and leadership politics. So it's a huge space, but it's interesting because it all gets lumped into memoir and there's not actually a subcategory that's called like work or industry memoir in the way that there is food or travel or coming of age. Uh, and I was just thinking actually the recent best-selling memoir made, which is really about working minimum wage jobs and is definitely exposing a broken system, which is technically kind of a work memoir. Uh, but these are the books that I'm most drawn to, actually, the ones that go inside an industry or maybe a system and then take to task what's not working and why. So they're memoirs that are sort of exposés in a sense. And I think obviously every industry has its issues. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I mean, people have issues, therefore industries have issues. Uh, and having a chance to look at the inner workings from an insider's point of view, I think gives us an opportunity to hold those industries more accountable. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, as you're talking, I'm thinking how maybe I just haven't had um, or experienced something that I need to make into an expose because I was thinking about, you know, every workplace is dramatic in its own way. You know, and I've, my work has been dramatic, whether I'm working in a restaurant as a waiter or working in a whole slew of office jobs that I have. But my basic inclination as a writer is to not write about my work. And that's because I feel like my work takes up too much of my mind space during the day. Um, so I don't want it to take over my creative time. But maybe if I had a deeper need to kind of expose something, I might uh, write about it. Uh, because I'm certainly happy that people do so because workplaces are dramatic and and, and thinking just about, you know, readership too, you know, the readership comes from people who, who either live that work life and want to see it represented or who are outsiders and are just very curious about it. So the books transcend their industries and speak to broader curiosities, you know, about various professions. I think it's also interesting to think about when it makes sense to write a memoir versus why you might want to fictionalize an account. So I think that happened with, with Zakia's experience, and, and I invite listeners to, to mull that over as we get ready to talk with Zakia after this very short break. Hey, everyone. I just wanted to tell you about this special event we have going on at NaNoWriMo. You know, a lot of people uh, tell me that they can't do National Novel Writing Month in November for a whole variety of reasons, and we've heard that for years. So a while back, we created something called Camp NaNoWriMo, and it happens in April and July, and that's why I'm telling you about it now is, is to hopefully invite you. Well, I'm going to invite you to sign up, and hopefully you will, and I want to tell you a little bit about Camp NaNoWriMo. It's a little bit different than NaNoWriMo because it's open to all kinds of writing, all genres. You can write an epic poem if you want to. You can write a collection of short stories. Uh, you can revise your novel. You can write 5,000 words or 50,000 words. You know, you set your own goal, but you'll still have that wonderful community of writers to participate uh, with. And you'll have a lot of wonderful resources that we will give you to support your writing. And in fact, you know, we have these different tracks during Canorimo. So there's the Nano Finmo track, which is all about helping you finish your novel. There's a memoir track if you want to write memoir, a revision track. And this July session, we're introducing a world building track. So for those of you who are writing fantasy novels or really any kind of novel, because world building applies to any novel, do a world building track. And, you know, one of its purposes is to get your novel ready for this November, to write it in November. So sign up for camp on nanorimo.org. So it's that simple. It's free got nothing to lose and a lot to gain. So I hope you do some summer writing with us. Mm -hmm. 
Welcome back, everyone. We are so pleased to have with us Zakia Dalila Harris today. Zakia spent nearly three years in editorial at Knopf Doubleday before leaving to write her novel, The Other Black Girl. Prior to working in publishing, Zakia received her MFA in creative writing from the New School. Her essays and book reviews have appeared in Cosmopolitan, Guernica, and The Rumpus, and she lives in Brooklyn. And we are so happy to have you here with us today, Zakia. Welcome. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here. Yeah, well, congratulations. This episode is coming out on the very week that the paperback edition of your novel, The Other Black Girl, is being released. And so it's been quite a ride this year. I just want to call out for our listeners that your book was called The Buzziest Book of the Summer last summer. Uh, And I just want to start with this place of now you're one year into this experience. And could you share some of the things that surprised you about the author experience, especially because you were inside the editorial world at Knopf and Nella, your protagonist, was working as an insider uh, inside this book publishing company called Wagner. So is there anything that surprised you, you know, or where you might have gotten it wrong, you know, sitting on the other (laughs) side of the cubicle, so to speak? (laughs) Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, it's still very um, surreal to to be here and be in this position, um, to be talking about my book and to hear it be called Buzzy um, <laughs> is also pretty wild because obviously having words in publishing, saw a lot of Buzzy books come and go, you know, like everything, all the hype. And of course I dreamed, you know, one day that would maybe be me, not necessarily Buzzy, but just having a book in the world um, with my name on it. And so to ha- actually be in this position is really wild, and I'm, I'm really excited about it. One of the things that surprises me the most, I mean, it doesn't really surprise me, I guess, knowing myself, but it's just how it doesn't get easier reading criticisms or mm. getting tagged in negative reviews on, on social media. You know, you'd think kind of, I mean, I have so many wonderful voices um, in my ear and such a, I mean, talking to so many people about this book and especially, you know, young black people um, is so uplifting and so wonderful. And, and I really do hold on to that, but it, it is kind of crazy to me how like, I still like care about what this random person in like Virginia said about the book. <laughs> but I mean, I think that's kind of a lot of writers too, depending on how involved they are online. Um, But I think the other thing on a more positive note, which is probably what I should have led with, uh, is that it has been really, really cool just seeing the book out in the world. Like I've never gotten tired of people sending me photos of it or or just like walking into a bookstore or in the airport. Um, It's really cool because like I kind of alluded to before, I've really dreamed of becoming an author one day. I loved writing as a kid. And so to see my full name on a novel, um, and it's exactly the novel of my dreams, the cover of my dreams, it, I just feel really lucky and really fortunate and I'm excited about it still. Well, Zakia, your book um, has been described as a cross between The Devil Wears Prada and Get Out. And it's an industry book about the publishing industry, just like the Devil Wears Prada is about the fashion industry, but the Get Out parallel makes your book, you know, really unique, and it really adds a true element of surprise and delight. And so, I'm curious, why did you choose to add these more fantastical elements to the novel rather than just have it be a straightforward type of Devil Wears Prada book about the book industry? It's funny too. I also add the comp of um, 
oh my gosh, the Stepford Wives as well. I kind of throw that in there because I do, it's a little too old for the publishing world as a comp, but um, I always like to add that one in too. And that's because I love that kind of story. I love stories that have um, very much seem like they're grounded in our world, perhaps mundane. Like I I grew up watching the Twilight Zone with my family as a kid, like the the marathons on sci-fi that used to come on or still come on, I think. Um, Are You Afraid of the Dark? Like stories about kind of everyday people who suddenly have something fantastical happen to them. And so when I got the idea for this book, I knew immediately that they're going to be two black women. They're both working in a very white industry that would, um, at first I was like, maybe not publishing, it's too real. But then I was like, no, it's there's not, there's nowhere else. There's literally nowhere else it could be said. When I had that idea of these two black women in this space, um, I also knew something was going to be off with one of them that was off beyond you know, the norm of the everyday. And, and that got me so excited, that idea the possibility of where I could take that weirdness and really punch it up so that it's not just about an office. It's about so much more. Like I love consuming that kind of art. Like I love reading stories like that and watching movies and shows like that. So it kind of just came naturally for me. Like, I think that's always going to be kind of the way I, I write or read the world, at least for, for now. That's what's exciting to me. Well, it definitely had an element of surprise. And I I loved how people called it a psychological thriller for that reason, too. Uh, But I also saw that you or I I think I I saw this on Good Morning America or something like that, um, that you wrote the book to make things better for people of color in, like you said, more primarily white industries. And it does feel I mean, I'm a publishing insider, too, that the industry has woken up to its whiteness problem. Um, I think it has to do with the moment I was thinking, you know, like partly just the social justice activism following George Floyd's murder, partly the reckoning of the industry around things like diversity numbers and missteps that it's made in recent years. There's been so much stuff like Twitter exposing the advanced discrepancy between white authors and authors of color. Um, So there's just been a lot of stuff going on. And I was thinking like your book really hit in the middle of this swirl. And I was wondering if you could speak to your role or maybe just the role of the other black girl or both in this moment in terms of like you uh, meeting the moment or the moment meeting you. Yeah, it, it's so funny because when I started writing this, it was 2019 and the concerns were, I mean, the focus was different. The concerns were the same. Um, in terms of like, I mean, George Floyd, of course, hadn't happened yet. But in my mind, I was thinking about Philando Castile. I was thinking about Michael Brown. I was thinking about Eric Garner. And this particular time in my life, um, and even Trump being elected, where like really crazy, scary things were happening out in the world. And I had to find ways, like everybody else, Um, But I do think when you're uh, a person of color, when you're a Black person and you have repeatedly seen um, people, Black people be murdered by not just white supremacists, but by police and nothing happens to uh, the people who did it and, and how harmful that is and how easy it is to be hopeless and fall into that kind of world. But then you do have to go to work. You do have to smile. You do have to be a person. And so I was I was figuring that out when Philando Castile and all those things were going on. I was working in food service. 
so like that's a whole other very different from publishing but still very similar of like the the how are you um i'm trying to just make a living and and like seem like a positive person and whatever working in this business and so that didn't really change with publishing when i was there i i felt like i had to i was definitely more closed off of like who i actually was i mean i I didn't have it as bad as Nella. I do like to say, like, I, I have so many good, good friends still from my job. I'm still in touch with my bosses and publishing, but there's still so much self-censoring that happens um, in corporate spaces like that. And so those are all things that I was thinking about that I had been thinking about before writing this book. And then once I started writing this book and knew it was going to be in publishing, I knew that Nella would have to grapple with that. And when I was writing, I definitely was a little nervous that like the specificity of Nella's experiences of of growing up in mostly white spaces and um, not finding her black her blackness and her black family until later on in life would be like kind of a uh, something that not a lot of people had experienced you know the way you're writing in a vacuum kind of but the conversations I've had with so many different black people black women and people again people of color who have just experienced being the other it's been really interesting having those conversations and seeing how again the the that feeling those feelings I was having four years ago, five years ago, six years ago are still feelings people are having today. Um, and it's really great to see that we're talking about them and, and, and having these conversations. That's, that is, that is partly why I wrote this book. And the other reason was because I just wanted young black people to see themselves on a cover, like, and see themselves in the world and without having to, you know, change the way we are or explain our hair or anything like that. Maybe I'm getting ahead of myself though, but, but I do think, yeah, but I, I really wanted to insert as much authenticity and what, you know, as many different views of Blackness and kind of uh, opinions on what people's Blackness means to them. All of those differences, I'm, I'm hoping that that just contributes to the conversation we've been having about representation and diversity and, and yeah, publishing and, and why it really is important to <laughs> accept writers for themselves and not be trying to put them into boxes. Um, same with publishing employees, like not putting them into boxes either, but really just letting us all be, which sounds so easy, but it's so hard. I feel like. Tiki, that's really interesting. And it's a topic that's on my mind is, is that crossover or overlap between the personal experience and then the fictional representation or exploration of that experience. And, and since your book became buzzy and it went to auction and it had a kind of trajectory um, that mirrored um, the book you wrote, um, I'm curious to know if you had any moments with your own author experience or if, you, or if you could talk more about that, about how it mirrored the ones you wrote about, particularly with the way the industry, you know, pushes out big books and mm -hmm. how they think about positioning and readership and all the rest, you know, since this can sometimes lead to some pretty cringy internal conversations, you know, the likes <laughs> of which you capture so well. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's funny because I really had, um, I really had a relatively easy time of making this book, uh, be what I wanted it to be in the sense that the cover, there was never a cover conversation, like what happens in the book of like, Oh my goodness, this is so offensive. And part, I think that's partly because I think that's mostly because my team at Atria has just been so wonderful from the get go of seeing my vision for this book, seeing what I was trying to do, 
um, and going with it. But I think also just the the fact that this book is literally pointing a finger at publishing. Like I, I don't feel like I don't feel like I I came up against a lot of uh, questioning because it's it, at the end of the day, it is about giving Black writers and just Black people in that space their due, what they haven't been getting, what they've been deserving. And so so I, I do feel like I, I had a nice kind of uh, avenue, whereas I know plenty of authors who do not have uh, that nice of a time. Um, some things are a fight. But like in terms of the cover, again, I keep talking about the cover. I guess you can tell I'm, I love my cover of <laughs> my book. <laughs> but um, I went into this, of course, knowing I wanted a Black artist to create the art for this cover. Um, and so my agent and I made lists of different artists. One of them was Timmy Coker, and uh, he had created this artwork. My team at Atria found um, this artwork that he had created for Twitter for Juneteenth, and he allowed us to license it. And it's a little different uh, if you look it up, but uh, he's a really brilliant artist. And I had reached out to him just to thank him. And he was like, of course, like I just we need more black women authors. And I was just like, Oh, I love this. I love this collaboration. This is how it should and could be done. You know, these houses, publishing houses have the money, they have the means um, to, to get more creative with who they're um, just how they're publishing books. And also they have the, the means to find the people who have more diverse backgrounds, not just race, but class wise too, to work in publishing. So it's, I'm hoping again, this just like continues for other authors who come up after me. I'm so glad to hear that because as I said, I've been working in publishing. I worked in traditional publishing for 13 years and then I've had a small press and I was just struck by the New York Times uh, having said, you know, white people are going to read this book, but they better not be, you know, looking to the outside to blame their problems, you know, elsewhere. And Mm -hmm. I I thought that was like a really interesting take. Um, I also thought, in reading your book that it's super brave <laughs> to write about the industry that you're in, you know, or an industry that you recently left. Thank you. Uh, and I also think it's something that a lot of writers and probably some of the listeners that are listening to us today want to do themselves. So what words of wisdom or caution do you have about writing something that exposes some of the darker secrets of an industry you've been in? And I'm curious, like, do you have any lessons or experiences that you've taken that feel advice worthy to people who might want to follow in your footsteps? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it's important for me to note, going back to your question earlier about um, what surprised me or what I've learned about this process, and I'll explain why I'm saying this now, but I think that it's it's important to know that once you have a book published, like you are, there's a chance you'll be talking about your own personal life, depending on how much overlaps. So like, <laughs> I think having that in mind of, Like, it's not just you writing this book. Once it's published, like, you are going to be talking to people about it. Hopefully, you're going to be having conversations about it. People are going to be asking you likely personal questions, um, uh, especially if it's a book like this that does criticize um, an industry, especially, especially if it's the industry that is publishing your book, so or that is making your book a book. So I think I say all of that to say that when I was writing this, I don't see it as pulling punches. I was definitely making sure when I was writing that I was not specifically writing particular people that I had worked with. Like that was something that 
I just never felt naturally inclined to do, didn't feel it was necessary. Um, I also thought it would hurt the book in the sense of like, oh, this is just a takedown of specifically Knopf and Doubleday, which is not what I intended it to be at all. I really wanted it to be the kind of book that points at the larger picture, um, because it's not just publishing that has this problem. It's it's a lot of industries. Um, I see it in entertainment in different ways. You see it in academia. So I was very aware of that. And I really didn't want to do that. And every writer is different. So I'm, you know, I don't judge. I think everyone's got their own experience. But I, I think I would say that. But then I'd also say at the same time, uh, the most important part, because you are going to be talking about this book, meeting other people, talking to readers, is writing what feels true to you. I said all of that before about like knowing people were going to be reading this book that I worked with. If I if I got it published, people would be reading it. But I also still was including very real themes, very real um, vibes that I felt in publishing. Um, I didn't hold back on the vibes. And so I do think that's important to still be making sure that you're including the truth that feels right to you. And I think that's something that can be helped by having other readers. I had um, my dad read a copy of the book, my MFA friends, a couple of my friends read the book, my partner. Um, Getting feedback on it um, early on is super important and kind of seeing where that takes you and having different people for different kinds of feedback. And so, yeah, I think writing your, in a nutshell, (laughs) um, writing your truth, but also just knowing that once your truth is on the page, and once it's published, like it is going to be interpreted and read by a lot of other people. And you'll you'll have to maybe answer some some hard questions. Well, Zaki, I'm not sure if this is a hard question or not, but um, <laughs> we thought it would be fun to end on the topic of hair. Yes, definitely. Oh, good. <laughs> Love it. Good. <laughs> I was like, where is this going? <laughs> yeah. um, you know, hair is so central to your book, and it's the vehicle for the supernatural aspects of the story. And it's also a deep look at how important hair and style is to black women and black identity. And I'm always really curious about inspiration for elements like this that end up being so central. So I'm, I'm curious, how did you land on hair playing the role it ended up playing in The Other Black Girl? Yeah, that it's that and that is one of those things for sure that's so personal for me um so i as uh i mean i feel like it's probably very clear (laughs) that i have a lot of similarities to my protagonist but um i grew up in a mostly white neighborhood in connecticut and most of my friends had straight long hair and I really wanted that as well for myself and and when I turned 10 I started relaxing my hair and like it was like clockwork I would I would get relaxers done um every couple months I'd go with my mom and and then when I went to college I'd had to figure that out on my own but I was still getting relaxers and and it just became like progressively harder for me and there came a point uh when I was I just moved to the city. Uh, I was doing my MFA in nonfiction writing. I had just seen uh, this documentary about the Black Panthers by Stanley Nelson. And there's a moment where Kathleen Cleaver is talking about why they wear their hair natural. And I remember watching it and just being like, why don't I wear my hair natural? <laughs> like, why do I do this to my hair? And why do I f- reach into my my roots? Like the roots grow out, of course. And, and so it's the natural hair. And then at the ends, it's the straight hair. And I'm like, why do I 
automatically do this, reach into my scalp, feel my roots and be like, oh, I got to straighten my hair again. Like that's, that's so unnatural. Like I had this moment. And after that, shortly after that, I, I went into a barber shop and asked them to just cut it all off. And there are various other reasons too, like being in Brooklyn, being around other Black people with so many different kinds of hair. And then I'd also found kind of my, my own Black sisterhood at, when I went to UNC Chapel Hill. Um, and they were all varying hairstyles, but a lot of them were natural too. So it was more visible to me. But yeah, that so that was my journey. And when I cut my hair off, I felt so much more in tune with my blackness. Um, and again, this was like 2015, 2016, a lot of protests going on. And after that, I also saw other hair differently, other black hair differently. And so I, I really wanted Nella to have that experience as well, um, because that's what draws her to Hazel. Um, when they're at when she sees Hazel in the very beginning, this isn't a spoiler, but when she, very first pages of chapter one, she senses Hazel's there and kind of gets a sense of who she is by the fact that she's natural. She has these long dreadlocks and there has been such a stigma in the corporate world, but just in general about natural hair and, and dreadlocks and afros and historically like the idea that your hair is more professional or you look more professional if your hair is more professional that's something that I know plenty of black women have experienced in the office and so when Nella sees Hazel and she sees she's natural she's like oh yeah like you're my kind of black person like we are both in this space together like we you get it but of course that's we're not just our hair. And, and that does not define Hazel's politics necessarily, as readers will, will discover. So so it was fun to to play with my own idea of, of what hair meant and how much hair actually has a role in demonstrating who we are to the world. Um, plus, it's just fun to write about hair. I think it's fascinating. <laughs> <laughs> All those things. I love it. It's very multi-layered and it, it was a fun element. So thank you for writing this and good luck with the paperback. We're again, really honored that you came on today, Zakia. Thank you. Thank you so much for, for reading and for having me. This was so much fun. We will be right back with today's book trend. Well, Grant, we touched loosely upon this with Zakia today uh, in a roundabout way, but I want to directly name today's book trend as DEI in book publishing, diversity, equity, and inclusion. And DEI initiatives have surged across a lot of industries in the wake of George Floyd's murder. It's a positive outcome of a devastating national event and trauma. But in the publishing industry, DEI has been at the forefront of hiring initiatives, staff training, acquisitions decisions, and lots of publishers have even brought in DEI specialists or created task forces. So it's definitely a trend and a past due one at that. Yeah, and I actually want to cast it as, as much more than a trend because the word trend, I know that's the, the title for this section of our podcast, but trend implies a moment in time that passes, um, which this definitely isn't. I think it's it's really a reckoning, um, as you said, a deep and long overdue and painful and disturbing reckoning on the overall industry level and the individual organizational level and certainly the personal level. And when I think of the phrase systemic racism, you know, the perfect publishing industry is, is a perfect example of that. 
So we have to go really deep into the word systemic and think about what it means and deep into racism. And I think we're going to be doing this reckoning for years, for generations, or we better be. And in fact, I can't even imagine a world where we don't have DEI initiatives at the forefront of our work and our consciousness. Um, but we've been using this, this acronym DEI, and sometimes people still don't know what that stands for. So for those of you not as steeped in DEI as, as Brooke and I have been these past couple of years, Brooke, um, can you provide a quick definition? Yeah, for sure. DEI is really about representation. Um, diversity is the presence of differences that might include race, gender, religion, sexual orientation, disability, and other perspectives. Um, and equity is about promoting justice uh, and having fairness within procedures and processes. So of course that impacts industries of all sorts. And then inclusion is making sure that those diverse voices that we're saying we want to make present actually feel welcomed. So in the book industry, DEI initiatives have been for sure about hiring more people of color, uh, but it's also meant that publishers are looking at their lists and efforting to publish more diverse writers. And those are in all of those spaces, you know, across race, gender, sexual orientation, et cetera. Yeah. Well, one thing that's interesting is the stats behind this efforts to me. For me, you, they can't be revisited enough. And uh, the 2019 statistics from the Cooperative Children's Book Center show that the percentage of children's books depicting main characters from diverse backgrounds are actually lower than the number of books with main characters who are animals. Oh, my God. Seriously. And, and just consider these numbers. Um, write them down. Memorize them. Research shows that 11.9% of main characters are Black or African, 1% are Native First Nations, 5.3% are Latinx, 8.7% are Asian or Asian America, 0.05% are Pacific Islander, and then 41.8% are White, and 29.2% are Animal or Other. And then additionally, 3.4% of books have a main character with a disability, and 3.1% have a main character who identifies as LGBTQ. So for me, those stats make it all the more disturbing that the recent push to publish more diverse voices is meeting this you know, strong backlash that we've talked about in previous book trends, namely through book banning. You know, It's these very voices the publishers are wanting to elevate that are also the ones most likely to get censored. Yeah, undoubtedly, it is very disturbing to see that play out. And I think it says a lot how you feel about these books that are, in fact, challenging you to open your eyes to oppression and systems that favor the dominant culture. You know, book publishing has way too long propped up the dominant culture, as evidenced by your statistics, uh, by marginalizing books by authors of color, by LGBTQ authors, you know, saying that these books have niche audiences, and then it's basically a self-fulfilling prophecy. So what I love is that DI is bringing attention to all of this. And as I said earlier, it's a way to hold the industry accountable, which is meaningful. Yeah, definitely. And for those of you out there, authors, industry professionals, or just interested listeners at large, if you're looking for more DEI resources, Brooke had a hand in creating the Independent Book Publisher Association's uh, DEI Resource Center, which you can Google and which we'll, we'll put in the show notes. And if you're a reader, you can support DEI by reading diverse authors, of course, and, and there are reading lists. Um, but my favorite discoverability tool on this front is just through hashtags. 
You can try the hashtags like uh, hashtag LGBTQ books or hashtag queer books or hashtag buy black books or the popular one from two summers ago, uh, hashtag blackout bestseller list, which was uh, a concerted effort to raise the rankings of black authors. And also I want to mention we, we need diverse books, an organization we work with a lot at NaNoWriMo, uh, which grew out of the hashtag, hashtag we need diverse books is a, is a great resource as well. So your homework this week is to explore some of these resources, organizations, and hashtags. And we will be back next week on the LitHub radio platform on our 200th episode uh, and with 200 more to come. So please keep listening. <laughs> <laughs>